notes in extra large at this time because I realized how far it is from my eyes up here down to that page. The last time I got up, I think I had 12 point font and I was squinting fairly hard. So um, hopefully this this hopefully this will go well. This this way. So right now in the middle school class. Uh, Daniel and I are going through the first six books of the Bible. Um, we're not going to spend equal amounts of time on each of those, but we just finished the book of Genesis. And I realized this time more than ever before going through it that Genesis is a difficult book. Because there's lots of stories in there where things seem to go pretty bad. There's a lot of strange confusing stories where it's not entirely clear who's right, who's wrong, what exactly is happening there. But we've had a lot of good discussion about what the Lord wants us to see there. And I want to bring out one particular point that I've seen throughout this time of going through that book. So tonight... I'm going to try to articulate this in the best way that I can, and specifically through through talking through some particular stories that we have recorded for us, both in the book of Genesis and throughout the rest of the Bible. And I'm and as as much as I can, I'm going to try to leave the application up to you, because I don't want to try to fit this into a particular application because I think it's it's broadly applicable. I think it has a lot of applications in this world, even and particularly today, and it certainly helped me to process and handle some of what I see going on in the world today. So in Genesis we see the beginning of God's ultimate plan for man But it gets off to a bit of a rocky start because after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, there's all sorts of destruction and and lies and deception and horrible things, even sometimes by those who have received the promises of God. And I find myself wanting to say, well, this guy is good and this guy is bad. And so God's going to bless the good guy and he's going to punish the bad guy. Right. That's what we all want to be able to say. And in some cases, that is an easy application. And we do make that application where where it's obvious. But then we get to to instances like where Abraham and Isaac both claim that their wife is their sister falsely so that they'll not be killed. And we get to instances like where um, Lot offers his daughters to the men of Sodom. And we get to where Judah would not honor the law with his daughter-in-law Tamar by giving her a husband and ends up conceiving with her. And we get to where Jacob deceives his brother in order to get the blessing from his father and subsequently from God. And it gets a little more difficult. Because even though these things may have a good outcome or may have good components to them, I find it hard to call them good. 
And I think we can maybe see this conundrum most clearly with Joseph and what we see in the story of Joseph. So I want to dive a little more deeply into into Joseph's story. So as you'll remember, Joseph's brothers don't like him very much. So they hatch a plan eventually to sell him into slavery to the Egyptians. So Joseph goes goes there when he's 17 years old as a slave and serves in Potiphar's house, where he is then thrown into jail after Potiphar's wife falsely alleges impropriety. While in prison, Joseph interprets the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he asks the chief cupbearer to tell Pharaoh about him so that he may not be in jail anymore. But, very naturally so, after the chief cupbearer is restored to his position, he forgets about Joseph. And so at the beginning of Genesis chapter 41, it says, two years goes by, and it just mentions that, and we just go right past that. But think about that. Two years. How long has it been since the COVID pandemic started? It'd be about two years in February to March, in this area at least. That's not a short amount of time. See, we tend to see these stories in a vacuum. Almost as if I, almost as I've just described, like one thing after another after another. And particularly in books like Genesis, we have a long time frame of history condensed down into just supposedly the most important parts that we're supposed to see. But these are long periods of time here. Joseph had to actually live those two years in that jail. And it says that the Lord was with him there, but even so, he was in prison for two years. So anyway, Joseph is finally remembered by the chief cupbearer when Pharaoh has some dreams that he's having some trouble interpreting. So Joseph tells Pharaoh that there's going to be seven years where there's going to be plenty, and there's seven years where there's going to be famine. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of pouring that food during the seven years of plenty, and then a couple of years into the seven years of famine, which is apparently spread out beyond just Egypt, Jacob and his family run out of food. So they end up in Egypt, where Joseph tricks them for a little while, then finally reveals himself, and they're blessed because Joseph is in power in Egypt. And so at the end of the book of Genesis... The brothers are afraid that since Jacob is now deceased, that Joseph will finally get his revenge on them. And so they ask Joseph to forgive them, or rather they tell Joseph that his father had asked him to forgive them. And Joseph says this in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 50 of Genesis. And if there is one thing that you remember from this tonight, I want you to remember these verses. I find these verses so interesting. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 50 of Genesis says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
So do not fear, I will provide for you and your children. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So understand, as far as we can tell, Joseph had been sold into slavery around the age of 17. It tells us that Joseph is 30 at the time he enters Pharaoh's service. That's followed by seven years of plenty and then at least two years of famine now before he even sees his brothers again. So by the time this whole plan is complete, Joseph is likely in his upper 30s to low 40s. That's a long time from 17 years old. And several of those years were spent by Joseph in prison. And after all of that, he says that even though he understands that they meant evil against him, that God meant it for good. And I would bet if he was confronted by Potiphar's wife in repentance too, I'd be willing to wager that he'd be saying the same thing. So this comes right at the end of Genesis. And as we think about the book overall, like I said before, sometimes there are horrible things that happen and sometimes they're perpetrated by the exact people through whom God will make a great nation. But what we can see throughout this is that Jehad has a plan. His plan is good and it will prevail. And that God's plan can not only overcome evil circumstances, but it can use evil circumstances. You meant it for evil against me, but God, he meant it for good. So this is going to come up again in Exodus when God shows Egypt and all the nations his power and his might with the plagues on Egypt and about how he brings Israel up out, out of the land. So in in Exodus chapter 7, this is where God is discussing exactly what he's going to do and exactly what what his plan is. Exodus chapter 7, in the first five verses. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to look, to allow the people of Israel to go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not pay any attention to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out people of Israel from among them. So God knows that Pharaoh's heart's going to be hardened. He knows Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. And he says in verse 4 that he will bring his people out of Egypt through great acts of judgment. And in verse 5, that the Egyptians will then know that he is the Lord. So Pharaoh's evil heart will turn into a sign 
for Egypt, for Israel, and for the other nations of the world. And, and we discussed this morning in the middle school class about the beginning of Exodus and how as the burden of Israel was increasing in Egypt, the Lord didn't immediately judge Egypt. He didn't immediately bring his people up out of the land, but he did bless them. He caused their numbers to increase, even as the midwives were not supposed to allow the children to be born. So we see that his plan is going to take a little bit of time, but we do see the beginnings of this plan even here. So the Lord is going to wait until Pharaoh's heart is fully hardened to execute full, swift, and obvious judgment on Egypt. And he's going to bring his people out from slavery. So again, the Lord takes evil and he turns it into good for his purposes. Here's another example. So you remember in uh, Humbers when Balak, who's the king of Moab, when he tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, but he would only bless Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23 makes the application here. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and and beginning in verse 3. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter into the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. They may not enter the, the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came up out of Egypt. Because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from a Thor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not pay attention to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God, he loved you. So God turned this curse into a blessing for them. And how about Jesus on the cross? Specifically when Peter is giving his his address in Acts chapter 2, at the end of his speech, he says, and I'm going to turn over there, beginning in verse 36, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36, this is what he says. He says, look. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter says there, let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They were cut to their heart. So even though they had crucified him, God meant it for the salvation of the world. Thank the Lord that there was an answer for them to that question of, well, what shall we do? So we can see that the Lord can use evil circumstances for good. I do want to be careful here, though. I'm not saying that because God turns something evil into good, that that makes the evil thing good. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 directly says, Woe to those who call evil good and those who call good evil. Paul expands upon this a little bit in in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 5. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, or, I'm sorry, I'll back up. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as as a sinner? And why not do evil that hood may come, as some slanderously charges with saying? Their condemnation is just. And later on in chapter 6 and verse 2 of Romans, Paul's going to say, shall we continue in sin that... Grace may abound? Obviously not. So our sin does not become good because it results in the goodness of God, but God still shows his goodness regardless of the goodness of man. You know, the world seems to be a little bit upside down right now. And as per our usual arrangement, good is portrayed as evil and evil is portrayed as good. And if we're not careful, the evil can consume us. It can cause us to question whether whether the Lord is there, whether his plan still works, whether he reigns supreme. But then I remember examples like Joseph. It's a story that seems to be characterized by evil, with conspiracy to commit murder, being sold into slavery, Telling lies and deception, etc. But even Joseph at the end of it all says that the Lord meant it for good. So I can rightly say what I think is true, 
And I absolutely should stand up for what I think is true and call out evil if I see it. Absolutely. But I can't allow that to impact what I know about who he is and what his plans are and about his promises and his blessings toward me. Because I don't know how this particular story ends. And I still believe that the Lord can use evil for good. And as Ryan reminded us on Wednesday night, when evil abounds, we need to look for the good that's happening underneath. So I may not exactly know how this all ends for the United States, for the world, for whatever might be going on out there. I, I don't know how this how, how it all ends. But I do have hope that the Lord will turn evil into good. And although I, not, I may not know how that particular story ends, I have confidence in how, how my ending will be. I'm going to read in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. And then I'll leave the application up to you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider that these sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not Willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning altogether in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also 
glorified. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against the Lord's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He wants to change your life. Just like he did with Paul on the road on the way to Damascus. He wants to turn the evil in your heart into good if you will open up your heart to him. All things work together for good for those who love God. If there's any way that we can help you this evening, if we can help you to accept Jesus in your life tonight, would you come?